mountain climber Dar Jamail is noticing how glaciers and a whole lot more are disappearing. He warns us we're running out of time to get serious about how we treat the Earth. When we now get to go see things that are still there, I hope that that deepens our appreciation and love for these places. An organizer of the very first Earth Day in 1970 reminds us of the hopes the environmental movement tried to instill in all of us. Throughout nature, the most powerful drive of living things is for survival. And the power of Earth Day lay in its ability to tap that core instinct. Plus, a guide from Rome helps us recognize what the Eternal City can show us about the centuries. My mission is to make Rome accessible because I understand that it can be overwhelming. And what do you do with 2,000 years of history? What do you do with 2,000 years of arts? The glories of Rome and the changes you should expect on our warming planet. It's where we're going in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. As the world grapples with the coronavirus and news changes almost daily about it, many people are isolated at home. But our travel dreams are free to bounce all over our world. Even if we can't travel right now, let's continue to enjoy the many cultures and experiences that await our discovery when this crisis is old news. Thanks for joining us for Travel with Rick Steves. It took a decade for Americans to take Rachel Carson seriously. In her book, Silent Spring, she described the dangers of carcinogenic pesticides to the environment and to our health. It spurred the U.S. government to create the Environmental Protection Agency, and banning DDT use in North America and much of the world got underway. Today, we're experiencing a new form of Silent Spring with the spread of the novel coronavirus, as well as the accelerating effects of climate change on the planet. Maybe these are all signs that Mother Nature is upset with us. Mountain climbing journalist Dar Jamail cautions us that we're running out of time to get serious about our impact on the natural world. He'll tell us why in just a bit. Let's start today's Travel with Rick Steves with a fresh look at one of the world's most celebrated cities, Rome. Francesca Caruso specializes in uncovering the layers of Roman history for visitors. She's with us to point out what's behind the sights we see so we can view Rome as our city to treasure as well. Francesca, buongiorno. Ciao, Rick. Francesca, every day you take groups around Rome like an evangelist of art appreciation. <laughs> I've been following you for 20 years this way, and it, it just, you're fresh now as you were when I first met you as far as your teaching mission. What is your mission as a teacher of travelers in Rome? I think my mission is to make Rome accessible because I understand that it can be overwhelming. And what do you do with 2,000 years of history? What do you do with 2,000 years of art? So... It's really giving some ideas on how to navigate it, how to make sense of it all. What does it mean? What does it mean to us today? And you've got a wonderful classroom. Well, it's not a bad office to have. <laughs> <laughs> now, what are the big challenges? I mean, it's, it's hot, it's crowded, it's people don't know their history. What are the challenges? Well, all of this. I mean, it's becoming more and more crowded. Yes, the summers are getting very hot, but I think we have to understand that these things don't explain themselves. It is not true that if you stare at a painting or you look at a broken column, it's going to tell you what it means. So we need a little bit of help. We need a few ideas. How do I look at things? What did the ancient ruins look like when they were intact, for example? So with a few ideas, we can do that. So when you're doing your work, are there moments when you feel like, yes, I've, I've really connected and, and this person has been opened up to the, the wonder of what I've loved for years? It's a moment that's the crossing of the threshold. It's that moment when you see that look in their eyes that they're right there. And sometimes I invite them to remember to think of themselves at home packing their suitcase before coming to Rome and then I ask them, think of where you are now, <sighs> the real thing in the real place. Think about this. And I see that they look around themselves and they do. 
Well, there's these moments. I mean, now travelers can enter the Colosseum through, what do you call it, the gladiator entrance? Yeah, the stern entrance, yeah. And you're on the arena, you're on the floor, and you can hear the crowds, and you can see the wild animals. And yes, the imagination is absolutely ignited by these moments. Now, as a teacher, I mean, anybody could just walk through some gate and look at the Colosseum on the inside. It must be nice for you to be able to have an entry that makes sense for the story that you're trying to tell. Well, I think the story is the part. I, I don't think, you know, after 20 years of talking about these things, I, I think that it's not so much the stones in themselves. It's what the stones have to say. I mean, the idea that the stones carry cultures, they carry stories that, that we can think about and we can understand the past, but we can also understand ourselves and having a conversation with those stories. So, in other words, the art can actually be more than just enjoying something fascinating or beautiful. It can have meaning. It can have importance. Well, the Colosseum. Well, the Colosseum. I mean, the Colosseum is bricks and stones, but the Colosseum is a place of violence. It's a place of politics. It's a place where there is the ethical, moral issue that comes up. What does it mean that these people went there to watch death all day long? So it becomes a an occasion to reflect on the use of violence and propaganda. I think that's so interesting because a lot of people go, "Oh, those Romans." I mean. Arena, That's the word is sand, right, to soak up the blood. Absolutely. That's why it's called an arena, because yeah. it was uh, uh, covered with sand. So all the bloodshed on the opening celebration of the Colosseum, how many animals were slaughtered? It was 9,000 or something like that. I always recommend working with perception. I mean, to also think, okay, violence, but what if I had been an ancient Roman sitting in the audience and I saw my first lion, you know, never having seen a photograph of a lion, yeah. not knowing what a lion looked like, a lion pounces out of the floor for the first time. 2,000 years ago, without zoos and circuses and documentaries, what would that have meant? So if we can put ourselves in the shoes of people of the past, it creates a different understanding and of history can, and culture. We, we don't need to be quite so judgmental. Exactly. And we also have to remember, what are the top-selling movies for us? You know, they're the shoot 'em ups the Schwarzenegger movies, all this kind of stuff, the, the wrestling, the car racing, everybody waiting for a crash. I mean, there's a lot of consistency between 21st century and 2,000 years ago. My challenge as a tour guide, and I would imagine yours too, is helping people see things in that context. I mean, today we go to Rome, and it's a modern city sitting on the ruins of a city that used to have a million people in it. There were a million people in Rome 2,000 years ago. How do we envision that? How do we appreciate that? The imagination is key, but the imagination needs to be informed. So if I say that Rome is the first city in the West that reached a population of a million, that in antiquity was the most populated city on the planet, and there will never be a million people in a European city again after Rome until London in the 1800s, there, there you, you go. can start thinking right about there. it. Right there. Yes, and then you start saying, well, what did it mean to provide clean water, food, housing to over a million people 2,000 years ago? What did it look like? And then you're there. All of a sudden you're there, and you're thinking like them. And you don't bring your baggage of perceptions of moral codes and ethics, but you're thinking like a Roman. And then that's the transformative aspect of travel, that you can be in the shoes of another person of another time. My challenge, and I just love this, is to not look at it from a yeah, I've been there, done that. I've seen it on TV. I saw that movie, you know, from the 24... Oh, we've got taller buildings or whatever. Put yourself in the context, and then you go, wow, they had a sewer system for a million people. They brought in water for a million people. They cooked bread for a million people. But if you're there, Rick, it happens. If you're on the other side of the world and you read it in a book, it's one thing. If you're in the place and you can imagine, you can think, you can reflect, you can feel, there are things that can happen if you're there that do not happen otherwise. It's these doors that open, it's these windows that open, it's a comprehension. Remember we talked about once how it felt to um, a Catholic pilgrim to walk into St. Peter's for the first mm. time 400 years ago? It's that idea of putting ourselves in the eyes and the shoes of travelers from the past. 
to step into St. Peter's Basilica for the first time and to be just dazzled by unimaginable glory. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm talking with Francesca Caruso about appreciating the art, specifically, of Rome. What's your favorite peaceful bit of antiquity where you can just sit alone with it? The Roman Forum is a place of my heart because you can sit on any stone and reflect on the passing of time and you look at these stones that 2,000 years ago stood for the grandeur of the most amazing place the world had ever seen. Then as ruins, they come to stand for the fall and the loss of that grandeur. And as they sit there in the grass with the setting sun, they stand for the resilience of the human spirit. And it's always the same stones. I remember when I was 18 years old, I, I sat, there's a little viewpoint a viewpoint to this day, just on the Capitoline Hill, where you could, you could actually sit on the, on the banister or balustrade and dangle your feet and look out over what was called the cow field, I think, a couple Absol- hundred years yes, ago. Yes, when it became buried. That's uh, when it became buried over time. That's what it became known for. And then for. you could just think of 2,000 years of uh, coming and going and civilizations and wars and all that. I think there's actually ancient doors that have been swinging on the same hinge for 2,000 years, aren't there? Oh, yeah, where the lock still works. Where the lock still it's works. Those, it's those little epiphanies. How many have you encountered in your life as a traveler? When a place is unlocked, then it reveals its essence to you. It's those instants when, when you know that you're there and I you know that, that you get it. Now, in ancient Rome, the Tiber River was, I mean, Rome was built on the Tiber River, I suppose, for a reason. What's the importance from a sightseeing point of view? What do we derive from the Tiber River? Well, I have to say that it doesn't offer the same experience that uh, rivers in other cities do because uh, the Tiber was also the reason Rome is in layers because it used to flood all the time and all the silt that accumulated through the ages made it rise vertically, the famous layers of Rome. So they solved that problem by building these high embankments in the 1800s. So now it's sort of isolated down there. We don't have this vital relationship with it. But reflecting on the River Tiber is reflecting on Rome. It's reason to be is a River Tiber. Seems, I mean, this may be simplistic, but I always think of Rome as where the Etruscan civilization to the north met the Greek civilization to the south, as far as you could go up the river with a boat in the first place where there was a bridge over the river. Perfect center Perfect for a center. great capital. Well, that's, you said it. That's why go. it's there. <laughs> and the, the, the history makes sense when you can be right there and put it together. Another very interesting thing about Rome is, I mean, it's remarkably chaotic, but it's also remarkably protected. I, it didn't occur to me until recently There's almost no modern buildings in the city. There's the fascist train station and a couple of fascist buildings from the 30s. There's the modern buildings surrounding the Ara Pacis, Mm -hmm. which is the great Roman Arch of Peace. Other than that, in central Rome, are there any post-World War II buildings? No, there aren't. And, and one theory that I read that I thought was fascinating is that during the fascist period, so much destruction took place, um, so much destruction of the antiquities and of also what Mussolini considered clutter around the major monuments that were destroyed and not documented. I think there was this deliberate decision after the war, never again. Oh, so they learned from that yeah, brutal approach to things as a fascist dictator We would. will not add our layer. I mean, Mussolini wanted a grand procession up to St. Peter's Basilica, so what did he do? Yes, and then he wanted to be able to see the Colosseum from the windows. You know, so he from the destroyed back. a whole medieval neighborhood. Absolutely. So never again. Francesca, it's easy to get overwhelmed in Rome by the outdoor sites and forget the indoor sites. Very briefly, what are a couple of galleries that you should see to make sure you're going to get a, a proper appreciation for all the marvelous statuary that has been taken in out of the acidic air so it can be properly preserved? Well, I mean, if I had to choose one museum in Italy, my choice would always be the Borghese. The Borghese Gallery has the most exciting art 
anywhere. Those statues by Bernini would convert anybody to art. I think that you can turn everybody into a museum fanatic at the Borghese. At the Borghese. With Bernini. And there you gain an appreciation for corrupt and filthy rich. Was Borghese a bishop or a cardinal? He, he was a cardinal. He was what we call a cardinal nephew, the equivalent of a secretary of state. Must yeah. have been quite a corrupt guy because he had all the money in the world. Well, you know, helps to be the Pope's nephew. <laughs> <laughs> and he had a big palace in the middle of the big garden. And, uh, and Bernini was dinner. basically, you got Bernini for your uh, decorator. Yes, I mean, he, he commissioned these four fantastic statues to him. But, you know, but I was thinking that these cardinals and these rich aristocrats were really like American millionaires who collected art in their great mansions to show off their power and their status. You know, it's very similar. There are all yeah. sorts of parallels that can be drawn. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been enjoying a little art appreciation in Rome with Francesca Caruso. Francesca, you've dedicated a beautiful life to showing Americans the wonders of Rome. What's the most gratifying thing for you when you take your groups around? As a Roman, it's, I think, when people realize that, that Rome belongs to them too. That in everybody's background and the words that we use in English and the thoughts that we think, there's a little bit of Rome. And so Rome's everybody's home. It's everybody's city. That's what I like the most. That's a beautiful sentiment. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Francesca Caruso's website includes tips for touring Rome. It's at francescacaruso.com. You won't want to miss what journalist Dar Jamail has to tell us about what you and I have to do to reverse the climate disruption that's unfolding all around us. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. The Earth is changing before our eyes. We're seeing a surge in Amazon rainforest wildfires, bleached and dying coral reefs, melting glaciers, and flooding coastlines. As mountain climbing journalist Dar Jamail puts it, the earth is in hospice. In his book, The End of Ice, Bearing Witness and Finding Meaning in the Path of Climate Change, Jamail travels the world to find some of the most devastated areas impacted by climate change and to find meaning in what's rapidly happening to the earth. Dar, Welcome to Travel with Rick Steves. And i got to say, this is, this is one of the most depressing books I've ever read. The Earth in Hospice. I mean, we've been talking about what can we do, what can we do. And to be blunt, we're not doing much, are we? We're really not. And, well, first of all, Rick, thanks for having me on your show. It's an honor. And secondly, thanks for talking about this challenging topic on a show for, you know, we usually travel, myself included, to appreciate the world and mm-hmm. live and have joy, and now this has to be part of that conversation. It's got to be part of it. I mean, I always like to remind people Thomas Jefferson wrote, travel makes a person wiser if less happy. I mean, there's a reality out there, and I don't I don't want to go to my grave in denial. We want to be engaged. Yeah, that, that's a great that's quote. important. Well, yeah. it was a hard book to write, but, I, you know, my one goal for the book was that people would actually finish reading it and then want to go be out on the planet in nature and wherever that place is. Wouldn't that be something if everybody just became enthusiastic about nature? That would be a big step in the right direction. I think it's the first step any of us have to take because I think the core cause of the climate crisis is our fundamental disconnect from the planet. As we become more and more urbanized. Exactly. Everywhere. I mean, how many people sit in, under the stars like we did when we were kids and count meteorites or me, what is it? Meteor, I don't even know what it is. Meteors. Right. Like riding it, across the sky. Well, exactly. And being awe and being in amazement. Being in awe of nature. To show respect. Well, you start your book in awe of nature. I mean, talk about grabbing my attention from the first paragraph. You're in the darkness, deep in a crevasse, looking up at a little slice of light. Why did you start your book there and, and give us a little bit of that experience? 
one reason is I wanted to get people's attention. You sure uh, got mine. As as that fall got my attention. See, I was I was on a climb in a, a mountain range just outside of Anchorage, Alaska, and I took a fall down a crevasse, and it was my first really big fall into a crevasse. And so it was a very harrowing moment where I was on a two-man rope team and almost pulled my partner in with me just from the force of the fall. But he stopped right literally on the edge. So I'm hanging there dangling over an abyss that I could not see the bottom, just blackness below me and looking up. And I, I chose to open with that because it really was shocking to me to have that fall and fall about roughly uh, 15 meters or so down and then realized that all that ice above me was going to be melted off in short order. And so that was really the impression that I wanted to leave people with. Not with short enough for your particular situation there. No, right, in that, <laughs> in that particular instance. So, right. in, And your, your partner couldn't do anything, so you had to wait for your other hikers to come and get up there, and then they finally pulled you out. Yes, very very harrowing But indeed. you got close to ice, and, and the name of your book is The End of Ice. You know, you're a, mountain, you're, you're a mountaineer, and that sort of informs your view, or it shapes your perspective on climate change. How has climbing mountains tuned you in to the, the wonder of nature and the tragedy of climate change? Right. The book is titled thus, and five of the nine chapters are very Alaska-centric because I moved up there in 1996 and lived there for 10 years. And so even though I wasn't aware of the climate crisis and wasn't a journalist, just spending so much time in the mountains, I was seeing firsthand these dramatically receding glaciers and the disrupted weather patterns across Alaska, even back in the mid-1990s. So the seed was always there. And then about five years ago, I realized that this is the book I really want to do. Uh, rock climbers tell me now it's previously safe routes are no longer safe because the permafrost is melting, even on the face of the Eiger or something like that, and it's got more falling rocks. That's a big deal on the, on the Matterhorn. That's right. Yeah. All around the climbing world, we see, you know, Everest is probably the most famous example. We saw, I think it was three summers ago, the giant ice avalanche that came down into the Kumbu Icefall and killed many Sherpas. And so previously, uh, we've had all these really legendary classic climbing routes that yeah. now are basically becoming impassable and unusable in front yeah. of our faces. I was just at the Matterhorn, and that was the, the big buzz, is this simple climb up the Matterhorn is no longer simple and safe. That's right, and you bring that up, it's good timing because just literally in, in the last couple of months, there's been scientific studies showing that probably by 2100, the Matterhorn may not even have glaciers on it anymore. This is so heartbreaking, and, and you say, the, I've never even considered this before, the, but the Earth is in hospice. You write... Coming aware of the wounds climate disruption has caused to the mountains and glaciers I've come to cherish over the years felt like watching a dear friend with a terminal illness. That is really what it's felt like for me. And in fact, I just got back from a trip to Alaska to give some book readings. And it was, for example, on November 20th, I gave a reading at the University of Alaska and in Anchorage, and it was 48 degrees outside and raining on November 20th in Anchorage, Alaska, that's not, it's supposed to be minimum 20 degrees colder than that up there. And rain, it felt like spring breakup. And it, it's heartbreaking to watch these places that we've always, you know, that I've known and loved for a long time changing so dramatically. Like when you go to Switzerland and expect to see beautiful, magnificent mountainscapes with glaciers, and we know now in Switzerland, they're literally in late summers putting white blankets on the glaciers to try to preserve them, give them a little bit more time. I mean, that's, that's just a heartbreaking thing. And I think it's important for us to note that and not try to avoid it. Well, yeah, we, we need to be honest with this. And uh, this whole hospice idea, when you visit a loved one who's terminally ill, 
you're comforting them as they leave this world. Uh, when you visit a loved one who's very sick, you hope and pray they get well. Are you saying we're beyond the hope and pray you get well with uh, planet Earth? Well, for a lot of systems, we are. And it's it's not just my opinion. I'm very careful to cite scientists and scientific right. studies when I talk about this. So, for example, the Great Barrier Reef being in terminal stage. I mean, that's that's coming from scientific studies. So, yes, the Great Barrier Reef. So, and that's a snowballing thing. I mean, when the reef is in terminal, that means a whole ecosystem is going to be messed up. Right. And so no longer a place to go visit or certain glaciers or, you know, the parts of the Amazon, et cetera, et cetera. So this, I think it brings into focus when we now get to go see things that are still there. I hope that that deepens our appreciation and love for these places and gratitude. Like, look at this amazing planet that we live on. And I get to go spend time with this glacier reef rainforest that's still here now. And that should inform what I do and how I behave in my daily life as well, so that hopefully that will be preserved a bit longer. Dar Jamal spent a decade as a war reporter covering Iraq and the Middle East. When he returned to America to enjoy the mountains and the glaciers he once climbed, he found the peaks and icy ledges he remembered were shrinking. In his book, The End of Ice, Bearing Witness and Finding Meaning in the Path of Climate Change, Dar explores what we're losing from Alaska to the Great Barrier Reef. But it's also a renewed appreciation for Earth's beauty, at least while we have it. His website is darjamail.net, spelled D-A-H-R-J-A-M-A-I-L, darjamail.net. So, Dar, go enjoy the world, embrace it, celebrate it, but let's be honest about what's coming up. If you believe in science, if you believe in what the general consensus among scientists is, pulling out all political, pulling out all economic distractions, because I think a lot of people's grip on reality is shaped by their stock portfolio and and this sort of tragic, sort of uh, lousy um, priorities. We've got some really big environmental events ahead of us. I just want to talk briefly about a few of these things. You're talking about a kind of a methane burp. What does that mean? One of the big concerns in the Arctic is in the shallow Arctic seabeds are trapped in, in the subsea permafrost, what's called methane hydrates, vast amounts of methane, which is a greenhouse gas 85 times more potent than CO2 on a 10-year time scale, that this is already leaking out. And the methane burp was warned of by Natalia Shakova, who's authored several papers on it, believing that we could even have a cataclysmic release of a massive, massive amount of methane all at once, hence the term burp, on the order of 50 gigaton CO2 equivalent, which would be an incredible amount of greenhouse gases added to the atmosphere in an extremely abrupt fashion. And one event like that, I got to say, forgive me for being crass, but that will make the plight of coal miners in West Virginia seem kind of trivial. It would, right. Yeah, that's the magnitude that we're talking about. And it also underscores, I think, the most important scientific quote in my entire book came from Dan Fagri, who's a USGS scientist at Glacier National Park, where he made headlines the summer I interviewed him saying, look, there probably won't be glaciers in Glacier National Park by 2030. And in trying to get our heads around the gravity of the crisis that's on us, I said, well, what keeps you up at night? And he talks about how what we're seeing are nonlinear changes that are no longer based on a simple relationship between cause and effect. He said they are usually abrupt, unexpected, and challenging to predict. So you talk about the methane potential 
they are usually abrupt, unexpected, and challenging to predict. And that's the thing that we have to try to get our heads around. And that's going to mess up any kind of um, friendly trajectories we might want to comfort ourselves with. It will. Yeah. It will. So like you got Let's talk about the ice cap and the ice cap on Greenland and the Arctic. When those crack, that would seem to me would accelerate the melting. What is the consequence of losing those ice caps? Yeah, the most famous feedback loop that I think most people are aware of is when we lose the Arctic summer sea ice up in the Arctic. So it acts like a giant mirror reflecting over 85% of the light and warmth back into space. Because white reflects the heat out. Precisely. Just like you don't wear black if you want to stay cool. Precisely. So if if the Earth wants to stay cool, it wants a white overcoat. Right. The more snow, the better. The more ice, the better. And when that is going away, which we know it is on the way out as well, then there's more dark blue ocean that's absorbing the light, heating faster, and it just speeds it. It feeds on itself. It snowballs. And we got the rising sea level, but we also got the warming seas. I mean, it's pretty clear if the sea goes up five feet, most great cities I know are on the sea. I mean, it's a serious issue. You also have something that's a little different to get your brain around, a warming sea. What are the consequences of a warming sea? Well, as you just said, the second biggest factor in sea level rise is warming water. So as water warms, it expands. And so that accelerates things. And then the other aspect of, you mentioned oh, earlier. so warming water takes up, it, it rises just because it's getting warmer. Exactly. I yeah. If, if you don't See, add more to it, but just warm storm. it. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then the other aspect that you mentioned earlier about reefs is it increases the amount of coral bleaching events that we're having. So it's harder for coral to exist when you're really warming up the temperatures. And these coral reefs, they're, they're nice for scuba divers and so on, but they're also nice for the survival and health of our entire ecosystem. If you think of the, the huge giant, what is the barrier reef outside of Australia? Mm-hmm. When that dies, that's the biggest organism on the planet, I think. It is. What's the consequence? What are the snowballing effects of losing that huge life form? Well, one quarter of all marine species spend some part of their life on reefs. So when we lose the biggest reef on the planet and so many of the other smaller reefs, then a huge amount of marine species are going to be immediately and dramatically affected, not even talking about what happens to tourism and economic consequences of, for example, the country of Australia if you lose the Great Barrier Reef. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Dar Jamail. His book is The End of Ice, Bearing Witness and Finding Meaning in the Path of Climate Disruption. You say climate disruption rather than climate change. Was that an intentional choice? It was because I was trying to be as scientifically specific and accurate as I could because many people listening has probably heard, you know, climate change or global warming. Those were actually terms inserted into the dialogue by fossil fuel interests because it downplays the severity of the crisis. And so Mm -hmm. disruption is literally what we see. In most places, it's getting warmer, but we also do have some places where it's actually getting colder, much colder than normal. So literally a a disrupted climate. I see. And And a colder area lets somebody who's a climate denier pick up a snowball and say, what do you mean climate change? You know, exactly. That's pretty sad. You know, we're a travel company. We take 30,000 people on our tours every year, so we're contributing mightily. Our accounting in our country doesn't make us pay the cost of uh, the carbon we add to the environment. This year, we've given ourselves what we're considering a self-imposed carbon tax because we've learned that well, if you invest $30 into climate-smart agriculture in the developing world or, or carbon offsets here in, in the wealthy world, uh, you, you mitigate what you contribute. So you're not doing anything heroic. You're just mitigating We contributed a lot of carbon by flying to Europe and back as travelers. In your mind, if you find a way to invest in something positive, 
that creates as much good as you've created bad by flying there. Can you find peace of mind in that idea of mitigation? You've washed it out. Uh, I'm not saying you're, you're doing anything to help the problem, but are you mitigating your negative impact? I think it's a good first step. It's complicated, right? Because all of us living in the industrialized West, none of us can be purist, right? I mean, I... You, you just I, can't... Yeah, you're not going to live like a monk. I mean, we're still going to travel, but we've taken the expense so that the people who take our tours have that comfort of knowing, yes, together we've paid for the cost of our carbon and we are carbon neutral. We have to go beyond that. But just in the short, simple sort of analysis it is possible to fly to Europe and back and mitigate the carbon you contribute. It is technically possible to do that. And I think that's the moral thing to do and it's the right thing to do and it's a really great first step. And obviously we have to go further on all fronts, we being the collective we. But that's very important. And I think when people are still traveling and taking these trips, also keep in mind, you know, I know one of the places that you guys serve is Iceland is... Iceland as a country just went up to one of their glaciers that they've lost from climate change and installed a plaque. I mean, take advantage of this... Uh, to raise awareness. The privilege, yeah, to raise awareness. Oh, and to go pay homage to what has yeah. been lost and what is in the process of being losing and go pay respect to that. Now, Dar, does it frustrate you when you see people talking about, I'm not going gonna, gonna to stop using plastic straws or, you know, little token things that, of course, it matters, but we can be A-plus students on all this little personal values thing, and we ignore the industrial effect or the governmental effect. It seems to me government and industry is where the real solution is, not me getting a a car that's uh, electric. But that's kind of a downer. I think it's all the above. I I think that we all have a moral obligation to consistently try to walk our talk and reduce our own personal carbon footprints. I think all of that's important, and it all counts. And remembering the fact that so that we don't guilt ourselves into submission uh, or become overwhelmed that, yes, it's 100 companies that are emitting 71% of all the CO2. Mountain climbing journalist Dar Jamail explores what's happening in the Earth's hotspots in his book, The End of Ice, Bearing Witness and Finding Meaning in the Path of Climate Change. Dar, I was very impressed by your curiosity and sensibility to indigenous cultural sensibilities and You write about how Western culture is all about rights and indigenous culture is all about obligations. Can we just wrap up our discussion with your take on the importance of tuning into indigenous values in this struggle? So the indigenous perspective is that we're born onto the planet with two primary obligations. One is to be stewards and take care of the planet. Two is to make all decisions based on what's going to be best for future generations of all species. And if I wake up each day and I consider those two things, those are my two primary moral obligations, then no matter how bleak things may appear with this crisis or the political crisis, I have my work cut out for me. If I can't find anything to do, then that's a failure of my own imagination and my own empathy for future generations. Just think about the children being born onto the planet today. What can I do keeping that in mind How am I going to live my life so that much later when someone comes up to me and says, did you know this was happening? And of course, I have to say yes. And then this younger generation person says, so what did you do? And that's what I need to keep in mind when I go through my life today.
We'll look at how efforts like Earth Day can stimulate us to action in just a bit. By the way, we recorded our conversation with Dar Jamail a few weeks before the world started to hear about a deadly new virus showing up in China. Dar explores what we have to be hopeful about with the Earth's environment in just a minute on Travel with Rick Steves. From the top of Denali to the Great Barrier Reef, Dar Jamail explores what's happening to the Earth as a result of our disconnect with the natural world and the acceleration of the climate crisis. His book, The End of Ice, is out now in paperback and includes a new epilogue. Dar, I'd like to talk just about hopefulness. You refinanced your home here in Washington State to buy acres around your property just so you could keep the trees. When you look at those trees, do you do that like you're visiting a, a dying relative and you just want a few more minutes with them, or do you look at those trees with hope? I, I do get hope from them in that when I was w- working on this book, I was sitting in my house that's surrounded by these beautiful, magnificent trees, and there were times I got really despondent and depressed regularly, and I would have to take breaks, and literally there were times I'd go outside and stand there and look at the trees and watch them swing in the wind and just feel gratitude, as, as well as like, okay, Y'all are still here. I'm still here. We're all still here. I'm going to go back in and keep writing. So thank you, you know, and just finding solace in the magnificence of the planet and all that is still here. You know, I like to be humbled by nature. I like to feel small. I love to walk on a ridge and just feel small under that big sky with these magnificent valleys and peaks all around me. But it's weird that little humans can have such a big impact on this vast planet. How is it that we can have the power to change the entire climate? It is amazing that we as this small species on the planet has managed to find a way to extract so much oil and gas and then burn it and emit it into the atmosphere in such a short amount of time. That's how it's been made possible. I mean, is that fundamentally what it is? It's burning fossil fuels? It is. Yeah. That's I mean, really that's it. the we, primary cause. If we, if we managed, does that give us any hope? Maybe we're going to come to the solution 50 years too late. Well, we already have the solution. We already know what needs to be done. We need to stop emissions. We need to switch to renewables. We need to change this consumerist capitalist lifestyle. And we already have the technology to do it. We already know how to make renewables. We have the capacity to do it. All these things we know, regenerative agriculture, all of this, you know, designating more wildlands on the planet, protecting what's already here. Mm -hmm. We know how to do all this. The only thing that's lacking is political will. Political will. In Norway, to have a Tesla is a cheap car because they get so many tax advantages. You have a Tesla, it's, it's cheaper than buying a regular Honda Civic, you know. Right. And because so when you when you look at the big picture, because you get all of this government incentives to do that, to be green, we, we need government proactivity, I would think. Right. And that's why governments have to lead, because the pace of the change and the scale of it could only be incorporated on the timeline that we have to have if global governments get on the ball. And we do see some examples of this in Scandinavian countries and places like okay. Iceland. So as I, as I started this interview, this is one of the most depressing books I've ever read. Is there any point to have hope? Is, is hope just delusion? Or if you were going to say, yes, there is a little hope, what would it be? It's really hard information, and it is difficult to take in, but I think we have to have an accurate prognosis to go forward. The way I describe it is, you know, if you're going to do a backcountry trip, you need an accurate, most updated topographical map you can get. And you know, you look out the landscape of the planet now and the climate crisis, and, I mean, it's, it's grim. 
But we need to know that in order to make informed decisions. And I think if there is hope, it's that, okay, I I can see very clearly what's going on and that's going to inform my decisions. And I'm going to be making very different decisions in my life, knowing how tenuous the situation is, not just right now, but for all future generations. And that's going to inform my decision making. I think that puts us in a position now where we can have an amount of awareness and then respond accordingly that we just didn't have before. Do you have a sense that there are smart people that understand the reality that simply deny it because it's not good for their personal financial bottom line? Oh, absolutely. I mean, is that that old famous quote, I've seen it attributed to Aldous Huxley, who says it's awful difficult to get a man to believe something he's being paid not to believe. Have you thought about this notion that in the last generation, corporations have been redefined as entities that have a legal obligation to profit maximize in the short term for their stockholders? And because of that, they cannot consider long-term sustainability. They have to make the money now and make it fast. Mm -hmm. And if the leaders of those corporations don't embrace that, they find different leaders. That's right. That's right. So the whole entire system is infected with Waitiko. And And that's why the whole entire system has to be changed. And contentment, therefore, is almost subversive. Exactly. You cannot be content. That's right. We were growing at 2% and it's a crisis. So we have to throw out this political leader and get another political leader so we can grow at 4%. That's right when the growth is actually the problem. The growth is the problem, right? So what about, you know, and that's where, you know, gratitude as radicalism, right? Because if you're grateful for gratitude what you have... radicalism. Oh, baby. Then you don't need anything, and you yeah. definitely don't need to go to the mall. See, there was a movement in Scandinavia that, that I was really into. It's called The Future in Our Hands, and the whole basis of that political movement was we are satisfied materially. Let's move up Maslow's hierarchy of needs and have more meaningful lives and be more sustainable. Perfect. It's a beautiful thing that's so Scandinavian, and it would be, <laughs> it would be stomped out here politically right. in the current sort of discourse. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Dar Jamail. He's written a book called The End of Ice, and it really is a call to action. It's a harsh look at where we are and why we are, and we are where we are because of us. There's no other excuse. It's our values. It's our inability and refusal to be honest with the future and where we're going. In your travels, you went to a lot of great places and it just heightened your awareness. Uh, Just very quickly, tell me what you discovered when you went to the the Florida coastline. So the Florida coastline is basically the front lines of the climate crisis regarding sea level rise. And essentially, all that's going to go away. I mean, to cut to the chase, the sea level rise experts that I spoke with there at University of Miami said, one of them in particular said, you know, we, we could be looking easily at 10 feet well before 2100. So add 10 feet to South Florida, and he literally pulled up the maps and shows me what that looks like. And all of South Florida now looks like the Florida Keys. And of course, the Florida Keys are long gone. So if you have property on the coast of South Florida, what do you think you should do, right? A rational person would be selling it yesterday and mitigating anything that could be toxic there for future generations, which is what this scientist is advocating. And instead, you look down there, and it's like every fourth building has a crane on it. I mean, it's a, it's a construction zone. The real estate market is still going forward. Yet you also simultaneously have banks down there that won't issue 30-year mortgages. Is that the truth? That's the, the truth. Banks, the banks see it. Some of them. Whoa. Okay, you went to the, um, the burning rainforests in the Amazon. Brazil, right? The Amazon rainforest, I got to go to Camp 41 with Thomas Lovejoy, the father of biodiversity, and the importance of biodiversity on the planet for 
all other species, including our own, can't be underscored. And the Amazon, as most people listening probably already know, is the most biodiverse rich place on the planet. And we're looking at it over this last year in 2019, burning at unprecedented rates. And we are losing species before we know that they even exist. And so much of our own medicine comes from there. We could be taking out species or allowing species to be taking out that could be producing antibiotics in the future that could save our species. That's how important it so is. So there's a hidden cost of climate change that we, have, we haven't even begun to measure. People just don't think about it. Oh. Right. And you saw the islands in the Bering Sea. What did that teach you? Well, that was really indicative of many things. The Bering Sea is the sea uh, off of Alaska. Yeah, off the coast of Alaska, mm -hmm. between Alaska and Russia. And the collapsing food web as you warm up the oceanic waters and the immediate and broad impact that has on marine species, birds, etc. And then, of course, secondary to that, to the people that rely on them the most directly, which is the Aleutian people out there. You know, I've been thinking a lot about how half of humanity is trying to live on $5 a day for smallholder farmers in the developing world. I think climate change hits the poorest people in the poorest countries hardest. Absolutely. And that's why I went to those islands, because there's 234 people that live on St. Paul Island year-round. This is not a cash-rich population. They're subsistence. They rely on fishing. And as in so many other places around the globe, it's usually the poorest and the indigenous people living in the most vulnerable communities that are feeling it the quickest and the most intensely. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Dar Jamail. His book is The End of Ice, Bearing Witness and Finding Meaning in the Path of Climate Disruption. So, Dar, if we want to, you know, do all of our recycling and, and drive energy-efficient cars and paper straws, that's fine. It's, it's a plus. But if we want to really dig in and make a difference, I mean, really get serious, what is your recommendation? Oh, gosh, that's a that's a challenging question. I mean, because um, I'm just committed to this notion that we can do all these personal hygiene things for the environment, and that's nice, and that's sweet, and raise our kids and Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts to do that kind of thing. But we've got to get serious politically and in the economy, I would think, about this. Well, this is why there's groups like Extinction Rebellion that are literally going out and trying to shut down parts of cities to make statements like, look, life as we're doing it, cannot continue. We have to disrupt the system. We have to force political leaders to pay attention and do the right thing. They're not doing it willingly. We know who they're being paid for uh, by. And so we have to force this change. And so I think each person now, we, we stand at a point in history where each one of us has to decide, okay, given what's at stake, literally possibly even the continuance of our own species, and me being answerable to future generations of humans, what am I going to need to put on the line so that I can answer them with integrity and with dignity about knowing what we know right now, what's happening to the planet? What am I willing to do to force the change that's necessary in my own life as well as on the broader scale? So I'm not ready to do civil disobedience. I'm ready to advocate in government and consume as if I can shape the future by how I consume can you talk a little bit about those avenues for progress or hope? It's like everything counts is my broad brushstroke that, you know, all the personal stuff from, you know, how much I can lower my carbon footprint on an annual basis to advocating to what you're doing to offset travel, all of that, it counts and is important. I think each one of us, I basically end the book talking about the importance of going into nature and listening and being really, really quiet and whether it's meditating or going to a mountain ridge, or the ocean, or a river, but just really ask 
what can I do to serve the planet and then really, really listen? And I think whatever comes up that really moves me, then that's what I need to go do. And that's how I got the inspiration to do this book. And that's how I found the inspiration to do my next book, which is on indigenous response to the climate crisis. But the importance of listening, which is essentially reminding people what indigenous populations have always known, which the earth will organize herself, the earth will give each one of us whatever our own personal unique messages to go do to serve her. Does it matter that the United States is not in the Paris Climate Accords? Well, it really is important, the fact that one of the biggest CO2 emitters on the planet is not taking a leading role in the solution. It's actually a statement. It's a symbolic statement that, you know, not only are we going to not take the lead in doing the right thing, but we're going to just completely pull out and not want to even be a cursorily part of the solution. It's, it's insulting and it's a statement. It's basically a thumbing of the nose at other countries, which is, happens to be the majority of the rest of the world. Countries are at least acknowledging that there's a crisis. Whether or not they're doing enough, we can talk about that. But at least most of the rest of the world acknowledges, certainly mo- you know, European countries, some of them, some of the leading countries starting to make changes. It, it creates a forum where you, can, where you can challenge each other and share information right. in, in a constructive way. Right. But what what do you say to people in the United States that will counter by saying, yeah, but these poor countries are making a huge contribution to climate change, and and you're asking us to take more of of a financial hit than they'll take. It's just not fair. Well, it is fair in that if you look at CO2 emissions, we're one of the leading emitters on the planet. Ergo, we have a responsibility to take on more of the burden for trying to find the solution. And it's simply, if you look at per person CO2 output, uh, by far and away, Americans, you know, we're one of the leading us, China, Russia, India, like that's it. You take those countries out of the picture and we have far, far, far less of a crisis. Dar Jamail, thank you so much for your commitment to this issue and working to raise awareness because we are all in this together. The book is The End of Ice, Bearing Witness and Finding Meaning in the Path of Climate Disruption. Thanks, Dar. Thank you, Rick. He grew up in a small paper mill town on the Columbia River. On a clear day, Dennis Hayes could see three snow-capped mountains. He could also see mile-wide clear cuts in the local forests. The very waters that Lewis and Clark fished now had incidents where thousands of fish were killed off by effluent from the mill. The scent the locals called the smell of prosperity was actually laced with sulfur dioxide and hydrogen sulfide. While the pulp mill provided an income for his father and most of his neighbors in Camas, Washington, Dennis knew from an early age that if there was to be anything for future generations to enjoy, we needed laws to protect the environment. Dennis Hayes became the national coordinator of the first Earth Day in 1970 and turned it into an international observance 20 years later. Let's take a moment to revisit his comments, which we aired five years ago on Travel with Rick Steves, and to share his hopes for where we should be during Earth Day's 50th anniversary, which we observed last month in the middle of a world of social distancing. Hundreds of millions of people in more than 160 nations pause each year on April 22nd to take some action for Earth Day. It's a time to reflect on the only planet in the entire universe that we know is capable of supporting human life. Hi, I'm Dennis Hayes. Earth Day began in 1970 in the United States. As its first national coordinator, I'd say that it's made three valuable contributions. First, it created a big tent for everyone who shared environmental values. 
Long before Earth Day, Rachel Carson had poignantly described the ecological collapses caused by agricultural poisons, and John Muir had extolled the vibrant grandeur of untrammeled wilderness. Activists in vibrant inner-city communities were already protesting plans to plow eight-lane freeways through their living room, and parents were terrified to learn that children breathing the polluted air of Los Angeles were inhaling the equivalent of two packs of cigarettes a day. But none of these interest groups, or hundreds of others, realized that they had anything in common with one another. Earth Day wove them all into something stronger than the sum of the parts, of the shared fabric of modern environmentalism. Second, Earth Day established that economic growth was not the only thing of importance to the American public. The gross domestic product does not measure the quality of our lives, the robustness of our health, the creativity of our artists, or the love that we have for one another and for all of creation. Audited financial statements contain no entries for the Bill of Rights or for biodiversity. Third, Earth Day was about solutions. Humans had made all these problems, and humans could unmake them. In the three years following that first Earth Day, we pushed through the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, the Safe Drinking Water Act, the Endangered Species Act, the Marine Mammal Protection Act, and the Occupational Health and Safety Act. We also created the Environmental Protection Agency. Even though I was just 25 years old at the time, I was recruited by Senator Gaylord Nelson to be the national coordinator of the campaign. My first sense of the true magnitude of the new force we were unleashing came in New York City. I waited on a 70-foot-high stage to address a crowd that packed the entire great lawn of Central Park. In fact, it even spilled down 6th Avenue, farther than the eye could see. The official police estimate of the crowd size at just that one Manhattan location was more than a million people. With 20 million participants nationwide, Earth Day was the largest organized demonstration in American history. But why? Throughout nature, the most powerful drive of living things is for survival, and the power of Earth Day lay in its ability to tap that core instinct. For the 50th anniversary of Earth Day, we need to find ways to tap into that survival instinct once again. Just imagine what we can do if we can work together to address the new global threats that we all have to confront. Dennis Hayes is president of the nonprofit Bullet Foundation in Seattle. His website has information about a book he and his wife Gail wrote called Cowed, The Hidden Impact of 93 Million Cows on America's Health, Economy, Politics, Culture, and Environment. It's at dennishayes.com, and that's Dennis with one N. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton, Isaac kaplan Wolner, and Kazmara Hall. We get website support from Amerikitnikon, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. There's more at ricksteves.com radio. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe, researching and writing guidebooks. His now classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. And Europe 101 is a full-color guide that makes Europe's history and art come alive. To learn more about Rick's guidebooks, visit our travel store. It's behind the Shop Online tab at ricksteves.com.